We're starting a new series this morning on the book of Hebrews. And if you don't have a Bible, you can just follow in the, in the, uh, the passages in the bulletin. But let me tell you a little bit about it. I try not to do a ton of intro when I start a series because I feel like it gets forgotten as, as we go along. So I try to farm in some of that background and, and intro as we go. If you're involved in a community group, and I hope you are, we try to put some more background on the, on the uh, little study sheet for community groups. So I'll try to do more as we go. But let me give you just some of the highlights. It's in the New Testament. We don't know who wrote this book. And there have been lots of speculations about it. The early church thought that maybe a, a man named Clement wrote it. He's mentioned in Romans, and some of his writings survive. Uh, some thought that Luke wrote it. Martin Luther thought that a man named Apollos may have written it. And the truth is that we just don't know. There's probably compelling arguments on both sides. But uh, usually I can stand before you and say, we know who wrote this and how that affects the interpretation, but, but not with Hebrews. The other thing is that there's not a lot of clarity about what form of writing this is. Now, the writing is excellent, and for people that really know their, their Koine Greek will say that the Greek and the structure and the rhetoric of this book is the highest in the New Testament. This was clearly structured by a learned writer. Uh, but there's ways it's like a letter, and there's even ways that it's like a homily. And at least one scholar has said maybe it's sort of a, a sermon letter. And we'll talk about that more as we go, hopefully, that it may be a sermon actually about a psalm from the Old Testament. We know some about the recipients, not with the detail that we'd like, but what, what is clear is that this is written to an audience that is largely, if not overwhelmingly, Jewish, and, and hence the name, to the Hebrews, stuck. And it seems that the circumstance is that these are, these are men and women who've been exposed to the good news of Jesus and have professed faith, but they're now being lured into returning to Judaism. And there's a lot of warnings in this book about if you have Christ... Why would you go back? And everything I looked at was of a piece about the main theme of Hebrews. Every commentary, every reference work, that it is a slam dunk. The theme of Hebrews is that Jesus is superior, period. Jesus is better than everything, and Jesus is better than everyone. Now, a lot of how the writer is going to apply that is in this Jewish context, and we're going to try to connect the dots to our situation. But I want you to think about that before I read this passage. Because just, just even right now, when I was standing here a few seconds ago, and I said, Jesus is better than everything and everyone, you're in a church, and you're listening to a sermon, so you might have thought, yeah, I mean, I kind of thought that's where you would go, <laughs> would go with that. But in our context, think if we, if we reframed the sentence, you know, different direct objects. There's that indirect object, object of the preposition. But to say that Jesus is superior to emotional wholeness. And I don't say this flippantly. Jesus is superior to more serotonin. Jesus is superior to physical health. 
Jesus is superior to relational connection. Jesus is superior to sexual fulfillment. And you see that it really begins to push on our insides to say that He is superior to everything and everyone. But that's how the book begins. And it's, it, it says it right out of the gates. So let's look at Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This is God's Word. Let's pray together. Our Father, thank You that we can and we have gathered in this spot downtown. We gather in Jesus' name, not in our own name. And we ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in Your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. I, uh, growing up in Jackson, Mississippi, I can honestly say that I had a lot of adults who were kind to me. And it was everything from teachers, school teachers, to uh, teachers at my church, Sunday school teachers, and friends of my parents who were kind to me took an interest in me. I can think of neighbors on our street that took an interest in me. We had a neighbor down the street named Mr. Johnson, and to this day I have no idea what his first name was. He was Mr. Johnson. And he just had the consummate, neat yard and neat little house, neat as a pen. And uh, I would go over to his house, and he, he taught me how to play Yahtzee. And I've forgotten how to play it, but he taught me how. But people who were kind to me, and you know, when you're little and you're immature, and I'm not, I'm not being unkind to little children, but just when, you, when, you, when you're not able to process what's really going on, you know, and people are nice to you, grown-ups are nice, you think, yeah, okay, you know, it's me. But as you get older and you realize that, you know, they really had to stop and they probably had other things to do and maybe you were a pest, I know I was a pest, and, and they took an interest in you, you realize they were very kind to me. They were very kind and patient to take an interest in me and to, to talk to me and pursue me. And, uh, and even if you, you don't have a child of your own, if you, if you have younger siblings or a niece or a nephew or friends, children, just anyone that you invest in, you know how that goes, that that child can't really appreciate now that you're putting the brakes on and taking an interest in him or her, and they probably won't realize it until much later. Um... How did, how did it land with you when I just read that passage that God spoke 
to our spiritual ancestors and that now he has spoken to us. Because it's a mark of spiritual immaturity that when you hear that God speaks to us, even if we wouldn't say this out loud to feel like, yeah, he does that. It's me. He's God. But it's a mark of maturity as you get older to think, as you, as you really get to know yourself. And, and you see how resistant to him you've been. And how unappreciative we've been. And how bad we've been. To think, why would he talk to me? It's a mark of maturity to ask, why would he want to keep speaking to people like me? Because the scriptures say that he keeps speaking. And in this definitive, ultimate way, he has spoken to us by his son, Jesus. Uh, I, that's how I want to look at this passage. It's, this was a fairly easy one to outline. Um, God spoke, and now God has spoken definitively. So let's look at it that way. God spoke, and God has spoken. Uh, first off, he spoke, verse 1, long ago. Now remember, this is not primarily a Gentile audience. So they, they know their Bible. They know what we call the Old Testament. They've grown up with synagogue and the prophets and learning about the priesthood and all that. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. And by the way, notice how the writer, whoever that is, says our and us. So the writer must have that same Jewish identity, that same Jewish upbringing, identifies with it. So he talks about the prophets. How did, how did God speak to us? He spoke to our forebears by the prophets. Now, when we hear the word prophet or prophetic, we tend to think of telling the future, you know, foretelling. And, you know, I've quoted what somebody taught me early on is that prophets did foretell. They did speak about things that had not happened yet. But the primary job of a prophet was to foretell, to speak to you the will of God, to be a spokesperson from God to you and speak on his behalf. And, uh, now, you know, there's part of the Bible, a big section of the Old Testament, these tend to be the clean pages in our Bible uh, that start with Isaiah and Jeremiah, and it goes into Ezekiel and Daniel and the smaller prophetic books. Those are prophets. But there were so many more. Uh, if you go way back into Genesis, and it's talking about the descendants right after Adam, there's a man who's seventh in line from Adam named Enoch, and Enoch was a prophet. And so we're, we're not just talking about hundreds of years, we're talking millennium plus of God coming to people through the prophets and speaking to his people. Now again, as you hear that, you might think, okay, great, yeah, God spoke to his people and he would send these prophets. But what you can lose is how expensive that was. And how uh, ill-received that was. Here, here's a snapshot. This is, this is from one of the prophets. These are from some uh, very clean pages in the Bible, usually. Ezekiel chapter 3. This passage was read at my ordination service. When I was ordained as a minister, this was the Old Testament reading. So this is God 
telling the prophet Ezekiel what he wants him to say to his people. And God says, and let me just tell you how it's going to go when you do that. So here it is, Ezekiel 3. And God said to me, Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak with my words to them. For you're not sent to a people of foreign speech and a hard language, but to the house of Israel, not to many peoples of foreign speech and a hard language, whose words you cannot understand. Surely, if I sent you to such, they would listen to you. But the house of Israel will not be willing to listen to you, for they are not willing to listen to me. Because all the house of Israel have a hard forehead and a stubborn heart. Behold, I have made your, your face as hard as their faces, and your forehead as hard as their foreheads. Fear them not, nor be dismayed at their looks, for they are a rebellious house. And then he goes on to say this, Speak to them and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, whether they hear or refuse to hear. And that's not God being cynical. God is not cynical. But that's God simply summarizing the response thus far. That the history of God's people is not, oh Lord, you just say whatever. Now, God's people have said that. God, you just say that word and, and we'll just do whatever you say. But the reality is resistance and pushback. Prophet after prophet after prophet was sent by God and was either ignored or attacked or murdered. You know, actually, later in this book of Hebrews, there's this famous passage in chapter 11 about faith. And there are all these names from what we call the Old Testament of people who, in different ways, they exhibited faith. And it talks about the experience of people who have faith. And one of the descriptions is some people who had faith were sawn in two. And according to tradition, at least one person who experienced that was the prophet Isaiah. The expense of God speaking to people who don't want to hear it. You know, I'm, and I hope this is not irreverent, but it, it reminds me of a little connection of dots between some old Star Wars movies and the newer Star Wars movies. In some of the older ones, I don't mean in the sequence, but I mean like 70s, 80s Star Wars movies. There's a passing reference when the rebellion is talking about these plans to take down the Death Star that this leader refers to, you know, many people died to bring us this information. And you, you, you skip all the way, now, in, in chronology, not in the sequence of the story, you skip ahead to a recent movie, Rogue One, and it shows that happening. And, uh, and there's this scene where these rebels who have the plans, they're trying to get it in the ship to the people that need it, and everything goes dark, and Darth Vader appears. And it's funny, I looked this scene up online, and I read the comments beneath it, and, you know, people said, I cried when I watched this. You know, it, I, I was physically frightened when I watched this, that he just starts murdering people that are trying to get down that hallway with that information. And they just barely get it through the crack in the door, but the expense is laid out on the floor. That's the experience of the prophets. And what you're getting there 
is a window into the fact that God is love. And I'm saying that without a happy smile on my face because the, the love is expensive. God is love. God does not love the good people who get it together and just sort of tolerates or dislikes everybody else. God is love. He does not love badness. But He loves bad people. And He kept speaking to them and He kept sending the prophets because God is love. Do you believe that? Before we move further, do you believe God is love? God is love. He spoke, but now, definitively, He has spoken. Verse 2. But in these last days, and when you hear that expression, remember, Jewish audience, that is very much uh, like a Greek quote of the Greek translation of the Old Testament. The last days are the days of the Messiah the days when Messiah has come and His ministry has begun. In these last days, He has spoken to us, not by prophets, but by His Son, Jesus Christ. Um, that word, Son, or sons, appears at least 20 times in the book of Hebrews. That thread runs through the book of Hebrews about the implications of the Son, the Son of God, or us being sons of God. I, uh, you know, you heard us pray for the Illingworths, and uh, Jonathan prayed for the Illingworths. Yesterday, Adam Radcliffe, one of our other pastors, we went to the hospital to visit them, and so when we were driving over, we were talking about what preachers talk about on Saturday afternoon, how's the sermon going, and um, we were comparing notes, and I, I just was saying to him, I love this passage, but verses 3 and 4 could be the sermon series for the whole fall. Just these little dependent clauses about who the Son of God is. So, rather than not say anything, let me, tr let me just try to do some big picture summary. And I want to speak to you like a creed, all right? We're going to quote a, a confession of faith in a little bit. But a creed might say, one creed does say, that the Son of God is truly God and He's truly man. And you get both of those here. Okay. How, how is He truly God? Look, look in the middle, or excuse me, the latter part of verse 2. And it's already said that the Son of God is the heir of all things, like a true, one-of-a-kind Son would be. His inheritance is the whole cosmos. He inherits the whole universe. But then it says this, through whom also He created the world. In other words, He's the Son of God, but He's an agent of creation. You can't be an agent of creation unless you are God. Then look down in verse 3, the second part of verse 3. He upholds the universe by the word of His power. So this Son of God isn't just an agent of creating everything out of nothing, but moment by moment, He's ruling and upholding 
every creature and all their actions, every molecule, he's upholding it. Now, you've got to picture, what would this be like if you're one of the recipients of this letter? And, and I'm being a mildly speculative, which is dangerous, but just because this might have been the case, it is possible that you were a witness of Jesus in his ministry or that you knew someone who was a witness of his ministry. It's written just a few decades after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. And what is the writer saying? He's saying, yeah, the man you saw absolutely is a man. You did not see a phantom. You didn't see a ghost. And he is truly God. He, he created the world with his Father. And everything that's happening in your life he controls and he's upholding it. But then listen to this description, verse 3. And, and it's, it's interesting that when the, when the early church, when I say early church, I don't mean 1800s, I mean like 200s and 300s, when, when, when the church was hammering out, what do we believe about Christ? What does it mean that he's truly God and truly man? He's not 50-50. He's 100% both. How does that, when they're trying to get their minds around that, the church reached for Hebrews 1 verse 3 over and over and over. Jesus Christ, verse 3, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He's the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. Think about the sun, S-U-N. And think about what we say when we get burned by it. And, you know, you go to the game and somebody offers you sunscreen and you go, no, I think I'll be fine. And then you pay stupid tax and you're burned. And, you know, when, when that happens to us, we don't say, I got too much sunlight. What do we say? I got too much sun. That's actually true. The sun is the source, 93 million, however many miles away. The sun is also the radiance that comes and actually can light, enlighten, or warm, or burn, is the sun. No radiance without the light. No light without radiating. Jesus Christ is the radiance of who the Father is. And like God, He has always been. There was no light before the radiance. But He radiates. He is the radiance. And He's the exact imprint. That's a Greek word that it only appears in this passage in the New Testament. It's, it's the image of a dye or a cast when it presses into soft material. And the mark that's left doesn't just somewhat correspond or mostly correspond. It exactly corresponds to the dye or the cast. Jesus Christ isn't mostly like the Father. He doesn't mostly show us what God is like. He perfectly, definitively shows us what God is like. He's the way God definitively has spoken. One of the, you know, as I try to get my mind around this, one of the best summaries I read was just a, a, a statement by a theologian named Michael Reeves. And he said this, There is no God behind Jesus who's not like Jesus. 
There is no God standing behind Jesus who's not like Jesus. There is no begrudging deity back here who sends Jesus because he's nicer and he's better with people. This God speaks who he is and what he is like by his Son. And if that would go deep down in our hearts, how would that revolutionize, for instance, how you read the Gospels? When you think about when, uh, when Jesus would be out teaching and healing, and there'd be, at, at, at different points in his ministry, so many people, they just couldn't even stop to eat or rest. And so on top of all the other chaos, at points there are lots of children running around, and the children want to come see Jesus. And, you know, there's a record of, of the apostles rebuking these children, and, and, you know, and trying to get some, some order. And have you ever read what Jesus said? Do not hinder children from coming to me. For such is the kingdom of God. And he would invite these children to come to him and put his hands on them and bless them. That is God speaking to us. And here's what I am like. When Jesus goes into the temple and this space called the court of the Gentiles, which is where if you weren't ethnically Jewish, but you came to know the living God and you wanted to pray to him at the temple, you could pray in that space. You couldn't go into the other spaces. And that had become the marketplace of selling animals to get ready for events like the Passover. So, hey, the Gentiles got displaced, but hey, sorry, they're Gentiles. And Jesus comes in, and he doesn't give an announcement beforehand. He throws the tables, and he knocks over the money, and he braids a whip of cords together, and he drives out the animals and the money changers and doesn't apologize for doing it. And that is God speaking to us, saying, this is who I am. I care about those Gentiles, too. He's truly God, and He's truly man. Uh, this is a little bit less description, but look back in verse 3. The last part of verse 3, it says, After making purification for sins, it doesn't use the word forgiveness, but that's, if this is a Jewish audience, that would ring true. They grew up reading about purification for sins and priests and temple, and sacrifice. It says that after this God-man made purification for sins, and we're going to, Lord willing, go in depth about what does it mean that the Son of God is the great priest, the great high priest. Because all the other priests and all the high priests that went before him, they had to keep working and working and working and working and sacrificing and sacrificing day in, day out, and it didn't stop. But then God spoke definitively by his son and his sacrifice. And the sacrifices stop. But after he made purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The New Testament brings that up quite a bit. That's why it's in the creeds. That he sat down at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. That means so many things. It means enthronement. But here's one big thing it means. You sit down when the job is finished. At least you're supposed to. He finished 
making purifications for sins. And all that he is and all that he does goes into heaven and he sits down at the right hand of God the Father before it's finished. And that means if you believe in him and he's your high priest, there's nothing you have to do to purify yourself because you and I can't. There is no remaining hoop to jump through or thing to do or thing to prove or relic to go touch or accomplishment to make. It's done, period. And he did it as one who's truly God and he did it as one who's truly man. The blood and the wounds were real because he's man. Um. So many applications here. Let me mention one. I, I said this to the 830 service, that there have always been sad things in our community as a church because it's a community. I mean, just any time you have a group of people, there's plenty of sad things, but there's so many hard, hard, painful, sad things going on in the life of our church right now that I, I just can't. I feel like I can't keep up anymore. And I, and I want to say that not like I'm a Messiah figure and I must keep up with it and I must meet everyone's needs, but I just mean that, that Jonathan feels that, Adam feels that, the elders feel that, fellow church members feel that, that I just can't keep up with all the hard, sad, painful things. So maybe this is timely. When, when real pain or trial comes into your life, whether that's sickness or death or loss or betrayal, when it comes into your life, it's our natural instinct to look at that thing and to wonder, what is God saying to me? Have you ever done that? Something really terrible or bad came into your life? That was a little redundant. Terrible or bad. But something awful comes into your life and you look at it and you wonder, what is God saying to me right now? And I want to exhort you to try to hold on to a biblical tension. And it's going to sound like I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth, but this is a biblical tension. Here's the tension. On, on the one hand, God is sovereign over that painful thing. And we just read that the Son of God upholds everything by the word of His power. Pain, disease, loss, divorce, illness, confusion, setbacks, non-resolution. He's sovereign over all that. Yes. That's not the main way he talks to us. He talks to us by his son. When we find ourselves asking the question... What is he saying to me right now? Please don't stare at unemployment to get your answer. Don't stare at infertility to get your answer. Don't stare at depression to get your answer. Stare at Jesus Christ to get your answer. What is he saying to me? That's what he's saying to me. Don't stare at the church. We ought to be what God calls us to be. I want us to be. I want me to be what God calls us to be. Don't stare at the church to get your answer. What is he saying to me? 
God has spoken by His Son. Let me end with this. Um, You know, I've mentioned to you that I have a tattoo that's invisible only to me on my forehead that says, please ask this man for money. And when you're around downtown and you go into downtown a lot, that's a target-rich environment. Or I'm the target. I don't know how that works. But a few years ago, I was on Main Street, and a guy came up to me, and he asked for money. And I said, I, well, I don't give out money on the street, but if you, if you need to get lunch, let's go get lunch. And he said, okay. So we went to a sandwich place on Main Street, and, we, and it was a little bit early. Maybe it's like 11 o'clock, but I thought, yeah, great. We'll eat lunch, and we'll sit and have lunch. And so we both got our sandwiches, and we sat down, and I start eating mine. And he said, well, I think I'm going to run. And he packed up his, and he hadn't taken a bite, packed up his sandwich and just walked out. So I wasn't planning on eating at the sandwich shop at 11, and I was going to eat with this guy. And then I'm just kind of by myself at the table. So I looked over at the lady behind the counter. There's not many people in there. And she said, he's going to sell that food. He comes in here all the time and does that. He's going to take that food and sell it to somebody and use the money for I'm not saying that as a discouragement for you to buy someone food. I'm just saying that was what happened this time. And so I thought, okay, well, here we are. But then I remembered what she said when he walked up. You know what she said when he walked up? Yes, sir, how may I help you? Zero sarcasm. Zero eye-rolling. It was so normal that I didn't notice it. And it wasn't till later that I found out she knows, his, she knows his scheme and she spoke to him that way. And in a way, that's a picture of God. He knows us. He knows our sin. He knows our idols. He knows the ways that we're saying that we follow Him and we have no intention of following Him. He knows us and He still has spoken by His Son because God is love. God is holy and God is love. So here's what I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray that if you don't know Him yet, that you'll see Him and hear what God is speaking to you and you'll believe. We can't make anyone become a Christian, but wouldn't that be amazing if you believed in Jesus today? But I'm also going to pray that if you are a believer in Jesus, that Jesus will become bigger in our eyes. We see him as he is, truly God and truly man. Let's pray. Our Father, that is our prayer. And if there's a a boy or a girl, a woman, a man, who has never heard you speaking by your Son... Would you open the ears, open the heart, give them saving faith to believe you and trust your Son, to see that you're good? And Father, for those who profess faith, believe in Jesus, have seen Him by faith, we pray that you would 
magnify him. That more and more we will see how big and good and holy and merciful, kind, divine, human he is. And we ask this in his name. Amen.